Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everybody, you are listening to Living the Dream and you're here with Dave and... John. How are you going, John? Oh, I'm pretty good, Dave. I've been pretty busy over the last period. It's a contributing factor as to why we haven't recorded this episode. It's been a long time. I think our last episode was September last year. a long time between beers. It was well, a long time. Craft we were only, we're, whiskies. We're only, we're only able to catch up once over the I know, it sucks. Well. It was good to see you, but we need to see each other more. We live in the same city, but we live on the wrong sides of the city. Yeah, well, one of us lives on the correct side of the city. Let's just, just, just put it that way. Let's go. All right. <laughs> You're doing okay? You're doing okay, though? Yeah, look, I'm pretty, pretty, pretty good. I was teaching a pretty ridiculously large unit over summer semester um and yeah getting ready to teach again putting in a bunch of grants academic life i mean we can't really complain we get paid very well to do the things that we love to do but it does take an awful lot of time do, um, do you know that i've decided to become independently wealthy so i can have more time to make podcasts that's a good ambition isn't it really all of our ambitions we're going to become independent are you going to inherit are you going to inherit something no, no, I'm launching a board. I'm launching a board game on Kickstarter. Oh yeah, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna leverage my audience to try to bully them into supporting my board game. It's called Baby Boomer. It's about baby boomers. I'm not bullshitting, by the way. I know people are gonna hear this and think it's a joke, but I am gonna do it, and I'm gonna be annoyingly self-promoting because apparently that's what you have to do now. Is there a good crossover? Do you think in like game board game players and far left podcasting? Do you think there's a crossover? Is there a crossover? I don't know. Yeah. Um, this is, this so. is my question. I think I think there's a crossover between podcasting and designing indie role-playing games as well, yeah. which, will, which will be the next Nerds. thing they'll do. But I, we are finally together to talk in our second episode of you know our series about trying to have a look and understand different theories of race in Australia. Yes. And today we're here to talk about White Nation by Gus and Hajj. Part of the delay is because it took me an inordinately long time to read this book. Yes. Which I think is a combination of my, a mixture of my own lack of discipline, both in reading time and also the fact that I get distracted by, you know, I'm still ordering more books than I can read. But also I think a problems that I've had approaching this work. But, you know, and I, it is... It has to be one of those few books that um, I think I can't work out if I love it or I hate it, and I'm actually quite excited about having a substantial discussion about it and the issues uh, that it talks about. Should we should we jump into it, John? What do you reckon? I think so yeah, I mean, I, I read this book a long time ago, and I haven't had the chance to re-engage as fully as you have had recently. But I've read a few key chapters, and I'm, and uh, yeah, I'm also looking looking forward. To kind of comparing, I guess, I can, it's, it's interesting because the book is like we've got with between, obviously, we're looking more at the 19th century and the Chinese and Asian 
anti-Asian sentiment. And this is a real shift here, I think, in what we're going to be talking about. And also, obviously, it reflects, as McQueen did, and being written in the period of the New Left and resurgent Marxism, I think you see a lot of 90s theory yeah. in Hajj, which is both interesting and really marks it out as a historical piece. Okay, so already, John, you, you've mentioned a number of things that I, I really wanted to to think about and discuss to to get into it. And there's a risk that this might become the whole discussion, right? Yeah. Like the first point, I think, is the disjunction between the intellectual debate McQueen was involved in and the, mm. the debate that Hajj is, is involved in. The, the second one is, I guess, like the kind of theory that we find here. Yeah. And the third one is the movement that it is situated in, if that makes sense. Like that this is very much a book that I think I first encountered during the rise of Hanson, mm. as Pauline Hanson. So I assume most people who listen to our show are Australians, but for those who um, who are international, Pauline Hanson, I guess, is probably the Australian equivalent of, of Le Pen, would you say? You know, the, mm. I guess that's really interesting, right? Because like this book, like this book emerges in the context of anti-Hansonism, partially driven, I think, by an attempt to respond to Hansonism. There's, there's bigger issues there, like the yeah. opening chapters also deal with how the kind of white multicultural establishment dealt, dealt with the reverberation of the wars in the former Yugoslavia here, anti-Arab racism in the context of the Gulf Wars. But there's a large driving force to understand Hansonism too. And so it's, you know, that Try, it compels us, I think, to think about what Hansenism was too and, and those kind of things. But, yeah. all right, so pulling back a step, my starting point is, particularly reading this after reading McQueen, it was so interesting that there seems to be no relationship between what Gasson Hajj is doing, who he's reading and what he's debating, and what um, Humphrey McQueen was only 25 years before. I think when you when you look at Humphrey McQueen, he is saying, okay, there's this labour mythology about the white working mm. class, to use that term, and then he presents a critique of that. None of that mythology is present in white nation. No. But I think one of the things that I found quite interesting, if you, I think there is an archaeological trace. So one of the people Garson Hajj credits, now I hope I don't get his name wrong, is Scott Pointing. Ah, uh, yes. And I think Scott Pointing, who's written a number of interesting books about multiculturalism in Australia, I'm pretty sure, oh, I've forgotten the name, I've forgotten the name, but particularly, you know, kind of anti-Lebanese and anti-Arab racism in Western Sydney. But you know how there was a book published recently on um, the 100 years of the Communist Party? Yes, off the top of my head, I think Scott Pointing has a chapter in that about an Australian historian whose last name is Ward. Does that sound Russell familiar? Ward? Not Russell yeah, Russell Ward. Ward. Yeah, I we think, talked about right. in the last one quite a bit. Yeah, so so that's a kind of interesting archaeological trace, or you know that, that yeah. I think some of the there there are people who would have been involved in both the debates around McQueen, who are in the intellectual environment that Gus and Hajj is working in, mm. um, but that presence isn't immediate. And 
it also, I also think there's another lost trace where there used to be at universities like a number of like critical multiculturalism studies schools. Like I think there was one at the University of Wollongong. Yeah. I think there was, but what was that, John? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that, yeah. The, and there used to be maybe one at Western Sydney as well. And I don't know if they still exist. Yeah, they might have been kind of a victim of, because, I mean, this is an interesting historical context to talk about, of course, as well, because this is book is published in 1999, is my understanding, uh, and then yeah. subsequent, so written in a period from 1994, he indicates, to 1998 then, where you see the apogee of, apogee, sorry, of multiculturalism as an idea, mm. and, and the apogee of the critique of multiculturalism as an idea as well. And yeah. subsequent retreat, both in terms of the way that how government attacked multiculturalism and how it's, it is now um, definitely not as clearly the governmental ideology that he talks about mm. in the way that he talks about it. It's not as present, at least in the way that white Australians articulate concepts of nationhood. Yeah, that's that's quite interesting, and I guess what's also I think one of the pressures of Hansenism yeah. was to end the the left critique of multiculturalism. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I think this is something that has been a kind of a tradition of the Australian left is that when something is attacked from the right, people move to almost like an inescapably defensive position. If that makes sense. But you were really right that this book and. Yeah, I, I really want most of the episode to be focusing on what I like from this book, if that makes sense, because I, I don't, not sure if it really works as a book, um, but it, it is also a product from the time, as you're saying, it's full of 90s theory. So Bordeaux and Lacan and a little bit of Zizek are the main influences. But also I think if we turn to like the subtitle of the book, where it's called White Nation Fantasies of White Supremacy in a Multicultural Society. This also identifies like part of um, how, you know, what's going on in, in the time this is written, you know, that in Australia you have the rise of Hansenism, but, the rise, but this is seen as part of a global phenomena that after the victory of capitalist parliamentarianism the formation of like a new world order. We have this emergence across many places of the world where, and, and like, and the collapse of social democracy into a neoliberal consensus, the reduction or disappearance of the communist parties, mm. social opposition to me, it seems to come from a populist right. And part of the diagnosis of this populist right is that what they're talking about is essentially a fantasy right, that they're motivated by a depiction of migrants, cultural transformations that aren't real. And I know mm. this is something that we've talked a lot about in the past, you know, when we've mm. had different discussion groups and ideology and whatever, trying to grapple with how does fantasy, and they're still being historical materialists, mm. how do we understand fantasy as being something that motive like is both produced by the material structures of that society, but also, you know, motivates people politically. And that the response can't just be kind of top-down rationalism. Does that make sense, John? 
Yeah. You know, but that was because that was the one thing about, about you know, like, you know, was Hansen's claims were being swamped by Asians or do you like the, this, this book references like um, Hansen's, Hansen's book. Did you mm. reread the section where it, re it references Hansen's book and what the future is? This is amazing. Here we meet. So th this is Pauline Hansen's truth. So this is a book that's written in a rise to power. And so Haj writes, here we meet the president of what is imagined to become the Republic of Australia in the years 2050. Look, I can't even believe I'm reading this shit. It's so ridiculous. Puna Lee Hung, a lesbian of multiracial descent, of Indian and Chinese background, who's also part machine, the first cyborg president. Her neurocircuits were produced by a joint Korean-Indian-Chinese research team. Donna Haraway, eat your heart out. That's incredible. It is. So it's like the, this question with the rise of reaction is yeah. um, the, the rise of um, fantasy. Yeah. And I guess when you read White Nation, Haj's core thesis, I guess, is that this reactionary fantasy embodied in Hansenism is not some outlier of the general social order, mm. but pre presents itself as some kind of um, essential truth to the, 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 the social order. And that the opposition between anti-multiculturalism represented by Hansen and what he calls white multiculturalism is not an opposition, mm. but is in fact a complicity. And I think it's probably worth trying to get into that argument. What do you what do you reckon? Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably the most important thing. We want to spell out what is the book <laughs> and what are the book's key key claims. And I guess the key claim of the book is. Yes, here we go. Yeah. Both the racists and the multiculturalists share in the conviction that they were, in one way or another, masters of national space, that it was up to them to decide who stayed in and who ought to be kept out of that space. Now, that's an interesting, obviously, kind of a premonition on Howard's infamous 2001 line that we will decide who comes to this country in the manner in which they come. Yeah. Hard, hard as Howard's serendipitous speechwriter. But, uh, I think that's one of the key claims of the book really is saying that there is a, this fantasy that you talk about is a unite, is a way that white, white people engage with the question of race is around this exclusionary dynamic and inclusionary dynamic. He frames this as a dialectic, but mm. the inclusionary is just as bad as the exclusionary where he's claiming yeah. it because on the one hand they both instrumentalize non-european peoples um what he calls third world appearing people which is an interesting term um and it it, it it instrumentalizes them and on the other hand it is completely disjointed from the reality that he presents of the nation in which multiculturalism is a fact and everyday multiculturalism is a fact of life but where there is this superstructural conflict that he imagines between white racists and white anti-racists, which is in a way disjointed from the reality of Australia in the 1990s, which was of a relatively harmonious society, is is kind of that seems to be really for me one of at least one of the key arguments. I think that was perfectly that's a perfect summation, John. And 
there's a lot in that that in the way that you've done that that I think is is really interesting and worth addressing. So, you know, the the first thing is that you know he says that both the you know the the white net the what he calls the evil white nationalists, I think mm. it's some kind of joke, and then the good white nationalists. So the evil white nationalists being those people who have an argument that there are too many of X group mm. in Australia versus the other company, the others who says that multiculturalism, you know, is a social positive, both imagine themselves as the people who should be or are controlling space yeah right yeah and i think that's an interesting point to take another step in so one of the first arguments that haj wants to make is that he's not really wanting to describe what's going on as racism just as racism right yeah so he's saying this is not necessarily racism as we understand it that someone says i think i am this race i think i am better than another race, but rather it's um, a white nationalism in the sense of it's about controlling who is or isn't allowed in a space. Mm. And that discourse may say X group of people are bad, but it can just be framed as X group of people are fine, but there's too many of that group of people here, you know? Mm. So, so it's a change from like, and, and this is important because one of the things he wants to address is that so many people who are, he is identifying as white nationalists make the argument that's like, I'm not racist. Right. Yeah. And he kind of says, okay, I'll accept that if we define racism as in a belief that there are biological races and some are supreme and some are jerks. Mm. But what we're really going on here, what it's really about is about the management of territory. So that's pretty interesting. And mm. then and then saying, you know, the debate about people shouldn't come in or people should come in are both fantasies where, a, where white people, racist and formally anti-racist, present themselves as the people who have that governing power over that space. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting at that theoretical level. But then, like you say, I mean, where's the, what, how does this connect kind of materially to what's going on in Australia? And I guess for me as well, it connects to what we were talking about with, around McQueen and we were, we, we, my memory of this is, it was a very long time ago now is that we were talking about the, the wages of whiteness sort of theories mm. as well. We were talking about not just like the hard practice people, but people like David Rodinger um, and you know, back to Du Bois uh, who, mm. who talked about um, these wages of whiteness, whether they be psychological or, or economic. And the question that I came up for me reading Hajj again was what is, I mean, it's the ownership of space is important here, but what's the what's in it for the white for, for the for the yeah. white people in the, in this argument? And how, what is whiteness to yeah, too okay, harsh? Okay. I mean, yeah. he he poses an interesting way. He says that I think he would agree with us. I think generally speaking, that whiteness and I agree with generally white scholars, white whiteness scholars that whiteness is not about skin color, but that whiteness is about 
using aspects of your identity that conform with a Anglo-Christian notion to leverage your class or social position. But yeah, the question is like, what's, what's, what's whiteness doing in Australia in the 1990s and how has it changed over time? Yeah, so this is two really interesting things here. So first of all, he does provide us with a theory of whiteness, which draws on Bourdieu, so not Badju, who I'm very familiar with, but but Bourdieu, who I'm not very familiar with. Um, And basically he describes whiteness as like a field of power, I think is, Mm. is the term that's used. So it's a historically constructed field of power uh, so a, a different groups contest at different times mm. about what actually qualifies as being defined as being white, um, and that is shifting and changing. And within that, there is like a, a natural aristocracy, if that makes sense. So mm. you could say at a historical moment, say Australia in the early 1900s, there has been from a variety of shifting historical forces, the creation of an understanding of white as being Anglo-Saxon, right? Mm. And so within that, there would be certain people by the way they deport themselves or the way that they dress, their Anglo-Saxon background, the schools they went to, who are kind of naturally white, if that makes sense. Who, mm. But then there would be Anglo-Celtics who say maybe a Catholic, who can be included in that whiteness, but it's not as equivalent, right? Yeah, yeah. And and then I really and then you could imagine then a similar situation in in the late, um, you know, nineteen in the fifties and sixties, say Polish, Eastern European, Yugoslavian migration, mm. those kind of things about people struggling for their inclusion. And in fact, there's an interesting example because part of this book it comes out of very kind of you know granular sociology like a series of interviews with people one-on-one and you know there's a case of a woman who pulls a headscarf off off a muslim woman in the street yeah and kind of Hajj does this little trick because only at some point he reveals that the person who pulled the headscarf off was lebanese christian right Mm. and you know, you can kind of see the motivation or the explanation or the understanding of that person who does that is because they don't, they understand themselves as Lebanese Christian not being fully accepted naturally into the field of whiteness, right? Mm. And that the, the, the presence of the Muslim in the street, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting this, is seen as something that delegitimizes the claim of of Christian Arabs to whiteness in Australia. And then, of course, the physical act of the removal of the headscarf is part of what kind of running around as we would talk about as part of this buying into whiteness or how do peoples who are not white make a claim on whiteness by participating in its construction and its ongoing kind of replication. So your, your question about what does whiteness give people... Yeah. I think is one of the the severe weaknesses of of this book because Mm. whilst labour is partially mentioned and the economic partially come into it, I think Mm. the overall argument is domination for the sake of domination, right? Yeah. Yeah. That people maintain this this power to maintain power. Mm. And 
part of my, my criticism of the book, I guess, is that I think it is insufficient. It is both insufficiently Marxist and insufficiently post-structuralist. That <laughs> yeah, can you that, can you develop that? Yeah, totally. That on on one hand, like on one hand, he talks about a real process is going on. Real mm. changes are happening, right? Yeah. And he identifies these as globalization, multiculturalism. And at one period of time, he kind of tantalizingly suggests that this has had an impact on white Australians and it has created very real feelings of displacement and a different politics could have created a different form of expression, but that's never actually gone into. But the actual transformations that are going on in capitalism aren't really present in this book mm. anyway. And the, the questions of how the capital relationship plays itself out in the structuring of the social space are absent. And so too is the state, right? Like, you know, there's, there's this assumption that kind of, you know, white people are in dominance and, and carry out this governing role of the social space. But how does this relate to the question of the state, right? Because mm. it's actually the state that is the body that does that. And the dominant, and of course, white people are at the highest peaks of that, but that's just left out. And it's insufficiently post-structuralist because it doesn't explain actually how identities are produced, if that makes sense. We just kind of get these like globs of people, you know, Anglo-Saxons, yeah. um, other European migrants, third world looking people, indigenous people, but there's not like, and they're kind of, you know, and then we say, we say, okay, these different groups of people kind of contest and that creates fields. But what actually produces race and identity? What are those relationships of power, effective investments? Those kind of things aren't present in the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're right. Like you get on one hand this, what I think is a really good approach to understanding whiteness as a historically constructed field, right? And yeah. I think my argument that I made earlier on where I think, you know, kind of whiteness is giving away to an Australianism, so people yeah. don't talk about white anymore, but they talk about, are you Australian? And within that Australianism, there's a, nat uh, there's a, a, national, a natural aristocracy, which is white people. Mm. I feel that Haj's approach here really helps that argument, if that makes sense. But how that, how that connects to the unfolding processes of capital in the time or how it connects to the production of identity and power so let's say one of those is marxism one of those is post-structuralism i don't think is present in the text so what we might want to do then is think about how would this look if we like we how we read mcqueen against the history of 19th century australia or well, maybe what was helpful here is to think about that this book concerns itself with really what the era of the white Australia policy as it, as it functioned from 1901 to the 1970s and then its residual after effects obviously into the 90s but if we were to think about it if we were to think about it in Australian in the context of Australian history like what's what's going on at the time what's going on in the 20th century that's, that's influencing what Hodge is talking about I mean Obviously, there's a that his idea of whiteness is is very helpful because he talks a lot about 
the shift from a white Australia mindset, which was about assimilation mm. and absorption, and a white Australian mindset, which is about multicultural acceptance and plurality. And he sees there as being a switchover point where that changes. But I think it might be interesting to go back and think about what's the what's what has been what happened in Australia in the 20th century in terms of the changes in who was Australian, as well as the changes in terms of how has the Australian economy been changing over this period? And how well, I, th- I think Hajj gives us a number of, of answers like this. One is he, he does engage partially with, say, the, like a motivation. Like, first of all, so his critique of, of the white multiculturalist is that they can't, and he relies a lot on a kid's story that um, one of his kids, I think, mm. I think his kids are, I'm pretty sure that's what it is, one of his kids wanted to be read to a fair amount which is a story about someone making a stew so there's a white person making a stew Mm. and all these different representations of migrants turn up and all their different flavors get thrown into the stew you know and he says well this represents you know the 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 fantasy of the white person as the multicultural mixer they're the person who gets agency that gets the right balance Mm. done and he links this in part to i guess a keating keatingist turn to Asia Mm. that makes sense that part of the economic reorientation of Australia that's going on in that period of time like require like requires a kind of presentation and a set of skills that multiculturalism is meant to give right um I think another thing that he identifies and you brought up this earlier is I, I do think he thinks that a real social transformation has happened that's separate from, and there's yes. an incredibly optimistic part in the book. Like this, mm. Yeah, in the conclusion, in the chapter. Yeah, nine, this paragraph at the end that basically to... kind of like we've got all these, you know, this we've had this this whole argument so far that talks about, you know, the reactionary white nationalists, then, you know, how tolerance is in fact just the inverse of tolerance, how white multiculturalists are just another form of fantasy planner, this fear of like, and there'll be at the very end of this book, the fear of Hansenism as if it's like the truth of whiteness, rising fascism, mm. that white multiculturalism is complicit with this. But then there's this very optimistic paragraph that's just like, well, people live multicultural lives. The third yeah. thing he talks about is the change in migration and says that what we have at a particular period, particularly with East Asian migration, is the people that migrate to Australia are the middle classes. And that unlike the previous waves of migration where people migrate to Australia and start at the bottom of the social hierarchy in terms of employment, they Mm. get jobs at the middle, in the 90s, at the middle strata of the social hierarchy. So for a series Mm. of people, so there's this part of the fantasy of white nationalism is a fantasy of disempowerment. So what people experience is suddenly bank managers, real estate agents, doctors, people getting promoted who are, to use um, Harsh's terms, third world looking. And this is one of the other historical transformations that goes on in Australian society. And at the same time, in the background, there's this thing called globalisation. Yes, yeah, that's true. I mean, when I, I think about this, I, I, I think about, talks about an argument that I've always kind of had, and I imagine I actually didn't realise that it is Harsh's argument that I've had in my head over the years, 
basically that multiculturalism is not a policy change. There's this idea that multicultural says that the white, that the, the, the neo-fascists, that the evil whites argue, which is that multiculturalism is this policy of social enforced, like social engineering effectively, which is taking whiteness and saying it's not a, it, that it's no longer superior, but that it's as good as anyone else, or maybe even worse than other ethnic or um, racial ideas or practices. But the argument that Hajj makes, which is very persuasive, is really that multiculturalism is not a plan by government to change Australia. Why would they do that? It was a response to the fact that the old mode of governance didn't work anymore. So from the 1920s, you see a much larger number of migrants. So the white Australia policy comes in, which is largely a response to Asian migration, right? We talked about that with McQueen, right? Um, and that's a, a successful attempt really to um, whiten Australia. You see that in the census reports that we see a drop in in Australia, it's like 98% white by the 1920s. But then things start to change and start to see more people coming in, more people from, of different ethnic origins who definitely not have been considered white, people from Europe, including Italian and Jewish people, um, peoples from Southern Europe, peoples from, and then also Eastern Europe in the 1940s. So the composition of the country starts to change and whiteness itself needs to change to accord to that. So we see whiteness start to shift. And we see these, you know, in the 1940s and 50s are all these plans to integrate, to anglify new migrants, but they never actually work. But it ends up changing, of course, as Australia ends up changing to accommodate these people. Whiteness itself starts to change. So that's, in a way then, what. And then in goods in the 50s and 60s, we start to get, we get, um, he talks about the skilled worker programs, you get skilled worker programs in Turkey in the 1960s and with Lebanon, whereas he said, because um, the way the French colonial system ran in Lebanon is that the Catholic Maronite population had a lot more political power and they were seen as white enough effectively. And that definition of whiteness shifts really dramatically during this time. So it then makes one think, well, What's if we follow hard and we say that, that whiteness is about effectively is about culture and taste and constructions and that which we take from Bordeaux, from Bordeaux, sorry, um, then is whiteness itself more meaningful to newer migrants than it is to old than it is to white mm. Australians itself? Because it's a part of how do these how do newer migrants become part of the racial compact in Australia, right? They, so how is that? And that then I think speaks well to his themes that he's talking about, you know, how it is often, you know, how, well, what do we have? We have that Rise Up Australia party or whatever, which was anti-Muslim was led by like an Indian pastor, for example. We get all these interesting things that start happening whereby it seems that new migrants class onto whiteness in this interesting way. If we, remove whiteness from the concept of biological race and see it as a bunch of tastes and mores and, and, and cultural well, there's, a, there's a lot here i think so i think it's definitely right the idea that multiculturalism originally arises 
as a reaction to, to the transformations in Australia and the, re- the failure of assimilation and people's rebellions, right? Well, no, not the failure of assimilation, but the success of assimilation. So it's, it's a, it, a success, actually, is that assimilation really did happen, but that white Australia assimilated to the new cultures in a way, he said. So assimilation, it, it was so much that the assimilation policy was so multiculturalized that they had to change it. <laughs> No, that's that's one one thing he does talk about. Where at the end of the book, he said he basically frames the kind of um, the fight between anti multiculturalists and multi and multiculturalists mm. as a transformation about who is defined in whiteness, mm. right? So, looking at Ron Casey's book, you know, he looks at this as a narrative of someone who says, "I'm not a racist," you know, but Australia is being transformed, mm. and the argument he gets you get from Haas is, go, go, okay, so there's a period of the time in the colonisation of Australia where the nat- national ar- aristocracy of whiteness is identified by some notion of English ruling classness, right? And then I guess in the 20th century, it becomes far more an egalitarian notion of whiteness. And then by the 90s, this transforms to an idea of a cultural and cosmopolitan inner city elite, Right. And that the real fight of dispossession is that kind of the Ron Casey's of the world who identify the the national aristocracy of whiteness um, as being a kind of um, rough and rugged blue collar egalitarianism are being displaced by cosmopolitan social planners. So he he basically sees this fight over multiculturalism being uh, a war of brothers within whiteness, if that makes sense, or uncles versus nephews. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So, and I guess that, you know, so that it's not, and then this is the bit where he goes, and this has nothing, I think it's just a bit, this has nothing to do with the real multiculturalism yeah. that's going yeah. on. Yeah, the actual, you know, when right? he talks about, you know, the in, uh, Anglo and Lebanese parents talking at the football, you know, Indian parent. Yeah, yeah na- neighbours neighbors picking, picking up each other. It's, it's quite... Yeah like kind of, you know, homely, if that makes sense, this model. But I think it's also that speaking, you know, you don't want to be too rosy-eyed about this, but it's. I think it does speak to how people have experienced, you know, a kind of real multiculturalism in very non-conflictual ways yeah. um, that neither fit the fantasy, the, the negative fantasies of the, the right, right, yeah nor do they fit they fit a left critique that imagines every moment of interaction between people and di- with different identities and a hierarchy of identities is necessarily a moment mm. overcoded with oppression if that makes sense not not saying it, it it's like he's really making an argument that neither fit in there I wanted to talk a little bit about the notion of fantasy if you want if that's all right well I've still got some time this book, does deal with the concept of fantasy and it draws on Lacan and Zizek and but draws on I haven't read Lacan and it draws on two books of Zizek that I'm not familiar with but I think fantasy is deployed in a number of different ways in the book and so is the concept of the real and the way that I understand Haj is basically saying is saying that something's going on a change that change is the real right um, the real is something that the social imagination can't ever kind of face directly. White fantasies are ones of disempowerment and then 
reclaiming power that try to do with this actual transformation that goes on. Yes. That's yes. like, I, I think we'll tweet our podcast to the Gus and Haj and you know, jump in or other readers and say, if I've got it wrong, I want to compare that to Zizek's mm. understanding of fantasy. And for people that are interested, there's a short essay called between oh is this the one between symbolic fiction and phantom phantasmic specter towards a lacanian theory of ideology which is in the collected book interrogating the real by Zizek, which i just found out one of the people who edits that edited that book is now on radio national as a horrible centrist but either way this is how he runs it he says there is the real is something that exists in the social body that the symbolic order cannot process right and he at different times identifies that either as class struggle or capital right and it so disturbs the social body that there needs to be another fantasy that displaces that disruption so you know in kind of classic 20th century 19th century capitalism nazi thought it becomes the figure of the jew right so the Jew becomes the fantasy who's imagined to be the disruptive agent that causes the, the effects that capital or class antagonism is that split in the, in the center of society. So the violence and the, and the irritation and the motivation and the hate that is directed towards the object of fantasy is a product of the disruption caused by the un- symbolizable real does that make sense so fantasy isn't okay there are x groups of migrants they are really like this but i imagine them to be something more it's more that there is something that the society cannot attend to and the disruption of that becomes displaced and understood and reintegrated in the social body in the real in in the in the fantasy not the real and that involves this kind of effervescent, febrile explosions of violence, right? And therefore, the only way you can really free yourself of the fantasy is politics that tries to address the real. Does that mm. make sense? So Zizek's argument is always like, you know, you, it does, you cannot find, you know, you don't, it's not about like finding the Nazi skinhead. And saying, ah, yes, but you know, the the people you are attacked are humans too, right? It's only going to be class struggle against the split in the centre of the society that can disperse the fantasy, if that makes sense. And then I think he spends 20, 30 years trying to work out the implications of that with various different effects. That is a very different idea. And so I think you would say, like... You know, if you were to apply the Zizekian reading to what Haj is saying is that the, the transformations that happen under, the, under capital and capital itself that's going on in, in Australian society cannot be thought in the symbolic order, right? So the fantasy then becomes directed at the migrant out, out other, right? And that the response to racist politics isn't you know, hold hands and tolerance, which Haj already like blows apart, but for different reasons, but struggle that 
pushes further the social cleft and can deal with the problem of the real at the centre. Does that make sense? I just, I just thought it was it was interesting um, because I think it leads to different politics. It's a different way of thinking about these kind of things. I'm broadly convinced with Zizek's argument. Um, but also, like, Haj's book is kind of, like, politically really ambivalent at the end. Like, and I, I think in some ways he keeps on saying, that's fair enough, he keeps on saying I'm doing intellectual work, not political work. But at the end, it's kind of, he just has this rhetorical flourish where he's just like, you know, maybe white people should get out of the conversation, right? But that's not a real politics. I don't know, maybe people can Yeah, no, I, 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 it's really, really interesting. I mean, you're right that that, that, that fantasy, uh, uh, you see, for instance, you talk about the, the figure of the Jew sort of an escape or like a safety valve for the changes of capitalism in the early 20th century or whatever, like, and then you could say, well, the, the migrant serves a similar purpose in Australia in the 80s and 90s, but I don't, yeah, that certainly isn't something that Hajra, I don't even say I would, would, would fully agree, agree with, like. I think it has immediate relevance now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we haven't mentioned that we're now in the formerly post-Trump era. Yeah. Right, and it's gonna have relevance if we understand what was Trumpism or the reactionary appeal of Trumpism, whatever, as just the system should just inoculate itself and isolate these crazy fantasists, right? Well, I guess a more kind of Zizekian argument are these crazy fantasists emerge from the, from the, the antagonism that is at the heart of the social body that cannot be thought in the ideology and symbolic world of the society as it is, you know. So, um, and I, that, I guess that's how, how we think about it. Look, I gotta I gotta go get the kids soon from school. What I wanted to ask you, John, as the historian, mm -hmm. is uh, how do we understand Hansenism? Yeah, well, I mean, I think maybe that can actually get around to some of the problems I was having, I guess, with the idea of the figure of the um, this sort of fantasy because. What's interesting about the Australian context, I suppose, is if we want to read it materially, we can say, well, in Western Europe, there was the figure of the, the, the Jew functioned as a safety valve for the changes of this, changes of the of the economy, but it was always this kind of vaguely spectral presence, right? Um, well, in Australia, you saw the construction of forms of racial hatred and racial exclusion on the basis of a concrete material position, right? Whereby the labor movement wanted to secure decent wages and decent conditions, right? And they thought the best way to do that was through a whole bunch of different, you know, fantasies, yes, and 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 um, you know, the geographic position of Australia and the capriciousness of capitalists you know, is through immigration restriction and whatnot. So I guess if you wanted to see, how do you view Hansenism in that in that context? Obviously since 1970s, you saw the end of the white Australia policy as an official policy in the 1970s, which of course coincides with the first turns towards neoliberalization in the economy, where now these are not connected phenomena necessarily, but they happen at the same time. They're experienced simultaneously as the increase in migration is experienced at the same time as the relative retreat from income equality that, is, that white, white male Australians enjoyed um, in the kind of 
20th century and particularly during the that post-war, those few post-war decades where we saw relative material equality between white males. Um, Australia was one of the most equal countries outside of the social bloc at, at that time, if you only view that, that particular, I guess, what part call aristocracy. So obviously then we see a retreat from that at the same time as we see um, significant changes in the composition of the population. And that's, I guess, where Hansenism comes from. We saw that, I mean, the Hansen quotes Caldwell after Caldwell in her maiden speech in 1996, when she's a, you know, a disgraced liberal candidate um, and is really trying to buy into and to, I think, seize an aspect of that lost laborist tradition that argued, said that, mm. um, said that, that, that Australia was a white nation, effectively. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that is an explanation for the Hansenism is that it pulls in a bunch of disgruntled labor voters. But equally, I think what Hajj was, was saying as well about the way that, um, that Hansenism allowed for a return of the repressed in some ways also very interesting, I think kind of connects to the point of making throughout about how do people act out racism and what role does the physical acting out of racism play in maintaining kind of what is generally a fairly consensual racial order, mm. if a deeply unequal and hierarchicized one. So how does that happen? Well, it happens through mostly just people being oppressed and sitting in different positions in that society, but occasional acting out of that as well to reinforce those borders right like yeah it's an interesting section of the book isn't it where you know and where you know he talks about you know the example um is you know lo looking at the the divisions between you know the religious divisions in lebanon like a little boy who you know is openly anti anti-muslim to a muslim in, in a shop or a barber barber place and you know on one hand gets shush shush down by the other people there because it's not polite but then is af afterwards is slapped on the back right you know that that hansenism serves to speak the un what everyone thinking thinks but the social rules doesn't allow you to say in public right and that's certainly how hansen um, promotes herself and i think by the end of the book you know Haj is making this argument that well this just becomes an integrated part of of now how the state the state and power will will manage uh, white multiculturalism a permanent functioning part you know it's like there was always pains on the left to prove hansenism was a middle class movement right and i know like there's lots of arguing over that and research work and whatever but i think what it, another way of thinking about it is what it shows is with the end of fordism that people even though if we say the capital relation is the main thing that produces class and class stratification in Australian society, people don't necessarily experience it or think about it in the language of class. And what Hansenism presented is how much people were thinking about, and still presents, think about inequality in terms of geography, in terms of culture, in terms of public deportment, in terms of ethnicity. Like the, the end of social democracy was the, the continual decaying of the worker identity, right? And the and part of what Hansenism does is then provide a different language for people to express that in a reactionary decision directions that no longer fit to the worker identity, um, e even if 
capital and the capital relationship is still there. You know, one thing that people often talked about, you know, is all the kind of small business owners and whatever. But I, I think this also fails to take into account that part of the end of, um, of, of social democracy and Fordism was the proliferation of like subcontractors, small business, you know, like, you know, that, that the disappearance of the big factory was suddenly the emergence of a whole series of subbies, you know, and, and right across the board in, in different ways. You know, the, the joke about every time the, the public sector sacks people, Canberra gets 20 new cafes, you know, like, you know, and how this works. Um, so look, I really think it's a book I really struggled with. I feel that, our presentation of it, I really, my walk away is really the strengths of it, you know, and its tools and its moment. Our next read is going to be The White Possessive by Eileen Morton, Eileen Morton Robinson. Um, hopefully we don't take as long a period of time. Um, I'd really like people to, to jump in, say what they think. Apologies it's taken so long. Um, I am going to go down and try to get some photos from my in my train station from a, a council artwork um, about multiculturalism that will speak to itself. And I was thinking of using, yeah, I was thinking of using as the final song, um, like a real um, artifact of 80s multiculturalism, which is uh, Shut Up Your Face by the Joe Dolce Musical Theatre. Uh, it but it's interesting, right, because it, Joe, Joe Dolce, I think is a guy, he's actually, if you look into his broader work, is a radical, right, you know, and I think has done all these really interesting radical musical projects and whatever, but had this number one hit acting out this ethnic stereotype, right? So I want to preface that for people who can't listen to that song again. That's probably what I'll finish with as, as like... Is this your equivalent of a trigger warning? Well, I think it's important, right, because obviously there's a context <laughs> to how you would oh, understand that. Yeah, yeah. And also I think it's a really interesting insight to something we haven't talked about, you know, was the kind of um, wogs out of work, Acropolis now. Yeah, no, it's a really good good paper from shout out to friends, Jess Carnegie and, uh, and Jane Persian, the recent. Australian Studies Conference, we're doing a whole project about wog humour. Oh, really? And the verse of wog humour, which is just going to be really great. But yeah, like, oh, can, we link, can we link to that? Like, I think... um, I'll see if I can actually, I haven't published anything directly, but I'll see if I can get like a transcript of the talk. Or something. Because I, I, I think that stuff is really like both yeah. completely mm. the success of the multicultural project, but the internal critique as well. <laughs> If that makes sense. Yeah, no, and that's really interesting. I want to just finish on a good quote here, if we can. If, if you think we're at that point yeah. there, but there's a quote from, from Harsh here, which I think encapsulates sort of some of this stuff, which is, let us be clear about this. The spread of culturally diverse social forms and processes was happening regardless of assimilation. And if a new policy was not created to help encompass this spread, the latter would have been, the latter would have had to remain outside the role of policy and as such ungovernable. That's fan, I, think that's that, I think I think that really come, sums up, I guess, the change from the McQueen period whereby it's about exclusion to one of control yeah. and domination. And then I think that feeds hopefully nicely into a discussion of settler colonial settler colonial studies more properly yeah. with Eileen Morton yeah. Robinson and, and more close to those concepts of possession that um, that. Obviously, Hajj deals with, but as he says, doesn't do justice yeah. to 
heard properly. Yeah. And, and also the implicit political possibility of ungovernability. Yes, I thought about that. Yeah. We are ungovernable. Is it? Political change happens from below. Yeah. And then if we see policy responses being governed by change from below, then actually we see it more profoundly. Yeah, I think. yeah fantastic. Yeah. All right, John, I'd love to stay right. and chat, but I've got to go uh, pick up the kids. <laughs> Well, the realities of, of, of yeah. life. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. You've been listening Thanks, to. Oh, just before you go, John, where can people find you on Twitter? At John Pacini. And I'm at with sober senses. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please direct all feedback, criticisms. It doesn't matter how strong. Would uh, if you've got a really strong, I would love to get you on the on the show. Right. So, um, sorry we've taken so long. You have been listening to Living the Dream. Hello, I'm a Giuseppe. I got something special for you. Ready? Uno, two, three, quattro. When I was a boy, just about the eighth grade, Mama used to say, Don't stay out late with the bad boys. Always shoot the pool, Giuseppe, going to flunk a school. Boy, it make me sick. All the thing I gotta do. I can't get no kicks. I always got to follow rules. Boy, it make me sick. Just to make the lousy bucks Got to feel like a fool And the mama used to say all the time What's the matter you? Hey, gotta no respect What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's not so bad It's a nicer place I shut up your face That's my mama, can I remember? Big accordion solo Star. Then they make a TV shows and the movies Get myself a new car But still I be myself I don't want to change a thing Still a dance and a sing I think about the mama She used to say What's the matter you? Hey, God, no respect What do you think you do? Why you look so sad? It's a not so bad It's a nicer place I shut up your face Mama, she said it all of the time What's the matter you, hey, got no respect What do you think you do, why you look so sad It's a not so bad, it's a nicer place I shut up your face That's my mom Hello everybody, that's out there on the radio on the TV land Did you know I had a big hit the song in Italy with this? Shut up your face I sing this song, all of my fans applaud, they clap their hands that's making me feel so good. You ought to learn that this song, it's real simple. See, I sing, what's the matter you? You sing, hey. Then I sing it the rest. And then at the end, we can all sing, ah, shut up your face. Okay, let's try it really. Uno, two, three, one. What's the matter you? Hey. God, no respect. Hey. What do you think you do? Hey. Why you look so sad? Hey. It's not so bad. It's a nicer place, I'll shut up in your face. That's great, we're gonna do the better this time, I bet. Hey, what's the matter you? Hey, God, I know respect. Hey, what do you think you do? Hey, why are you looking so sad? Hey, it's a not so bad. Hey, it's a nicer place, I'll shut up in your face. So bad, hey, it's a nice surprise.